I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. This episode deals with graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. On May 6th, 1999... Tyrone Kahn escaped from the notorious Kingston Penitentiary in Kingston, Ontario. At 32 years of age, he had already spent over half his life in institutions, and he was facing another 47 years in prison. No one had escaped from the decrepit limestone jail in over 41 years, but that wasn't going to stop Ty Kahn. After all, he did know a thing or two about breaking out of prison. Ty had run from almost every institution that had ever tried to contain him, including Collins Bay Federal Penitentiary, twice. And although he vowed to walk out of prison the next time instead of scaling a wall, he ultimately couldn't keep that promise. For months, he planned his daring escape down to the smallest detail. And on the chosen date, everything went off without a hitch. It wasn't until the next morning that a maintenance worker spotted a rope dangling from the prison wall and alerted prison officials. But by that time, Ty Khan was long gone, and he had no intentions of ever coming back. But just 14 days later, his short taste of freedom came to a sudden end. And the promise he made to himself to never set foot in Kingston Pen or any other prison for that matter was realized as he sat slumped in a chair in a dingy basement apartment in Toronto, dead from a single gunshot wound to the chest. And while it was clear who pulled the trigger, there were many more questions about who and what was ultimately responsible for his tragic death. I'm Catherine Fogarty, and in this podcast, I'm bringing you the true life story of a man whose short life was almost predetermined from the moment of his birth. A soft-spoken, intelligent kid, abandoned by his family at an early age, he grew up a product of the system. Foster care, group homes, and juvenile detention centers. He learned how to survive the hard way and eventually developed a taste for stealing and running away. And by 17, he was robbing banks. But 
He never once harmed another person in the commission of his crimes. Sentenced to a lifetime behind bars, he broke out of almost every prison that tried to contain him. And then, his daring escape from the escape-proof Kingston Penitentiary turned him into an instant celebrity. He was the good-looking fugitive on the run. His story garnered huge media attention and a sympathetic response from the public. But his final taste of freedom was short-lived and the circumstances surrounding his death left a lot of questions unanswered. This is Escape from Kingston Penitentiary, The Life and Death of Tyrone Khan, Episode 4, Final Fishing Trip. In the spring of 1998, Ty Khan was desperate to get out of Millhaven Penitentiary. He had been there since the fall of 1995 and had endured countless riots and lockdowns. The Haven housed some of the most volatile and violent offenders in the system, and it had a reputation as one of the worst-run prisons in Canada. Because of the constant unrest in the prison, it became difficult for Ty to focus on his work and rehabilitation. And those were the two key things that were going to help him move into a less restrictive environment. Ty was serving a long prison sentence, and if he had any hopes of ever getting parole, he needed to get transferred to a medium security facility. But all of his requests were denied. Ty had a well-earned reputation for breaking out of prison, and it wasn't surprising that no warden was willing to take a chance that Ty had changed. But at 31 years of age, Ty felt that he had changed. Through his work with a prison psychologist and his supportive friendship with CBC producers Lyndon McIntyre and Teresa Burke, he had a better handle on the demons that had chased him since childhood. His adopted family had rejected him, and he had learned to survive by stealing and running away. But where had that ultimately gotten him? 47 years behind bars. Maybe, just maybe, there was something else for him, and he could have a future. Lyndon and Teresa were encouraging him to write a book, and he wanted to help other troubled kids avoid the same mistakes he had made but nothing seemed possible in the foreseeable future if he didn't get out of Millhaven. Ty realized he was going to have to find another way out of his current predicament. And to no one's surprise, it involved another escape plan. In the spring of 1998, it turned out that Ty wasn't the only inmate who wanted out of Millhaven. Two other inmates were planning a brazen breakout and they wanted Ty's help. The inmates were planning to swallow parts of a razor blade in order to be taken to the Kingston Hospital. Once they got to the hospital, another recently paroled prisoner would be there waiting for them with guns to overtake the guards. Then, the three inmates would shoot their way out of the hospital if necessary. A gunfight in a hospital? 
It was a reckless plan that could put unsuspecting bystanders at risk, doctors, nurses, or other patients. Ty pretended to go along with their scheme, but he knew it was something he did not want to be part of. Ty had done a lot of bad things, but he had never physically harmed another person. He detested violence, and he wasn't prepared to be part of something that could result in innocent people getting hurt or killed. Ty was in a no-win situation. Go along with the hospital escape plan and risk having blood on his hands. Or go against the prisoner's code and betray his fellow inmates. But maybe there was another option. If Ty went to the administration and told them about the conspiracy, it probably wouldn't take long for the other cons to figure out who had ratted them out. And rats didn't last long in prison. So Ty would have to be transferred out of Mill Haven for his own safety. It was a risky plan, but Ty decided it was his best chance at getting out and getting on with his life. So Ty did the unthinkable. He informed on his Millhaven brothers. The escape plan was soon thwarted, and it didn't take long for the other guys to realize that Ty Khan had betrayed them. The bank robber and escape artist, the well-liked solid Khan, was now a marked man. He was a rat, an informer, the lowest of the low in the prison subculture. So, on the night of May 29, 1998, Ty was quickly spirited out of Millhaven in the back of a prison truck. He was finally out. His plan had worked. Or had it? Ty had finally put the horrors of the Haven behind him. But his next stop would be even worse. Ty's new home was Kingston Penitentiary, Canada's oldest prison. Built in 1834 on the western edge of Kingston, Ontario, Kingston Penitentiary had a long-standing reputation as the toughest 10 acres in Canada. Well known as the decrepit home of sex offenders and rat finks, it provided a protective custody environment for inmates who wouldn't survive in any other institutions. KP, as it was nicknamed, was a prison filled with the lowest of the low, and it was looked down on by inmates in other prisons. For Ty, being in Kingston Pen was hardly a step forward, and he questioned if he had done the right thing, exposing the hospital escape plan and thereby putting his life in jeopardy. Now he had the stigma of being an inmate at KP, and that in itself was dangerous. But his jailers at Millhaven had assured him that he wouldn't be there for long, and he really hoped they kept their word. There was no way Ty could continue his rehabilitation efforts in a place like Kingston Pen. And if he didn't get transferred to a medium-security prison, his chances of parole were next to impossible. But fortunately, Ty did have some people on the outside who were ready to help. A young lawyer had taken up his cause and was trying to work out a deal with the Crown. 
If Ty pleaded guilty to some unsolved bank robberies, perhaps they could arrange a transfer to Workworth Institution. And Ty's parole officer from Millhaven had also recommended a reclassification to medium security. Ty just needed approval from the administration at Kingston Penn and the green light from Workworth. After 13 long years of incarceration, he was feeling hopeful. If he did well in a medium security setting, he could be paroled in four or five years. He could have a future. But as spring turned to summer and summer into fall, Ty was still behind bars at Kingston Penitentiary. And his darkest winter was just around the corner. As focused as Ty was on his future, it didn't mean that his past wasn't going to haunt him. Ty had a long history with Corrections Canada, and there were some people within the bureaucracy that hadn't quite forgiven Ty for his previous prison escapes. And one such individual was now in charge of Ty's living unit at Kingston Pen. Rob Clark had been Ty's case manager in Collins Bay when Ty absconded in 1989. That was the time Ty had escaped while on a day pass for his brother Max's grade 8 graduation. Rob Clark had developed a good rapport with Ty Khan at Collins Bay and had actually escorted Ty on three previous day passes. They had spent some good times together and Rob had even met Ty's mom, Marion, during one of their outings. But when Rob Clark was unavailable on the day of the graduation, he sent someone else. And that was the day that Ty took off. Now, almost 10 years later, Ty's future rested in the hands of Rob Clark. And he wasn't prepared to reduce Ty's security level from maximum to medium. And while others were willing to give Ty the benefit of the doubt, Rob Clark had the last word. And he said no. Clark argued that Ty Khan was still at a high risk for escaping and reoffending. And while he thought Ty was a model inmate in all other ways, Clark believed that Ty was simply addicted to the thrill of the escapes and the bank robberies. Was Rob Clark right? Or was it possible that Ty had changed and matured in the decade since they had known each other? At 31, was Ty sincere in his determination to go straight? If he was, he had just been knocked down again. His transfer to Workworth was denied, and he would remain in Kingston Pen for the foreseeable future. Ty was marooned, and the certainty of spending the looming winter in the cold, archaic prison was almost too much for him to bear. Depression quickly set in, and as the days got colder, Ty's thoughts grew darker. But it wasn't long before an old, faithful friend came calling. That familiar trickster who teased his mind and promised relief from despair. It was freedom calling, and it was time for Ty Khan to plan another escape. Ty was not a blamer 
or a complainer. And that is what had endeared him to Lyndon McIntyre and Teresa Burke when they first met him. He had always taken responsibility for his life choices. But as the months ticked by in 1998, his correspondence from Kingston Penn was sounding more desperate. In a letter to Teresa Burke, Ty wrote, I can't seem to get a break or a chance from these people. It seems I'm doomed to pay for past mistakes forever, and they can't be convinced that I just want to get out of jail legally. Lyndon and Teresa had visited Ty at Kingston Pen at the end of the summer, and at that point he was still hopeful that he would get a transfer. But as 1998 drew to a close, Ty seemed despondent, and by their next visit in January of 1999, he was angry and bitter. This was unusual for Ty, but Lyndon and Teresa later learned that he was taking antipsychotic drugs to ward off depression and suicidal thoughts. Two other inmates had killed themselves that month, and another prisoner had been murdered on his range. And Ty was back in solitary confinement after being caught trying to smuggle out a letter to a friend. Ty would end up spending six weeks in the hole, and he wasn't thrilled with his new neighbor, Paul Bernardo. It was during his time in solitary that Ty decided he wasn't going to wait for the prison bureaucracy to decide his fate. If they weren't willing to give him a chance at freedom, he was going to take it his way. Live or die, he didn't care anymore. But he wasn't going to waste any more time in Kingston Penitentiary. So, for the next few months, Ty did what he did best. He watched, he waited, and he planned another perfect escape. Ty was looking forward to the weekend of April 25th, 1999. His mom, Marion, was coming for a visit. In the past 14 years, since his biological mom had re-entered his life, Ty had finally gotten a glimpse of what it was like to be part of a loving family. And while he loved his ma, as he called her, they would sometimes clash, as many parents and children do. But his relationship with his brother, Max, was easy, and it was fun. Ty was the cool older brother, and he had a lot to share with Max. Max recalls some of their times together. I remember when we were, when we were in the, uh, when I visited him, we'd have pocket full of change so we could use the uh, vending machines. And, you know, I remember his favorite was Burt Bridge mixture. I remember getting those and like we'd all sit down and eat candy together and stuff like that. And so that was, that was another one of my fond memories too. And, and when Max got older, he fondly remembers taking a very special someone into the prison to meet Ty. We went into the uh, prison, Kingston, with my son at one point. They had, uh, my, uh, my son's mother was with us. We were together at that point. Uh, they had, uh, <laughs> I remember passing him, my son, in the awkwardness. I'm like, what the hell? Like, I'm like, <laughs> like you could tie his face, right? Like, like, I don't know what to do with the kids. Like, hey, just, you know, hey, Uncle Ty, right? And 
You know, I, I remember that. I mean, I, I, I was so happy about that, but I think it made him extremely uncomfortable. For Marion, seeing Ty locked up was difficult, and she was hopeful that one day he would get paroled. He was still a young man, and she knew he had a lot to offer the world if he got the chance. He was extremely intelligent, kind, and thoughtful. But on that particular April weekend in 1999, Ty seemed preoccupied, not his usual self. Marion knew that he often had trouble sleeping, so she put his restlessness down to fatigue. One evening, she woke in the middle of the night, and she saw him staring out the window of the family visitation trailer. Sad, thought Marion, because at Kingston Pen there was nothing to look at besides the foreboding limestone walls that surrounded the penitentiary. Was Ty envisioning a life on the other side of those walls? Yes, he was. But on that particular evening, he was watching the dogs. At night, the guards made periodic rounds with specially trained German shepherds, just in case someone was attempting to escape. What Marion didn't know while she watched Ty staring out the trailer window was that this would be the last time she would be visiting her son in Kingston Penitentiary, or any other prison for that matter. Just 10 days after enjoying a long overdue visit with his mom, Ty Khan escaped from Kingston Penitentiary. He had been planning it for months down to the finest detail. First, he had to figure out a way of getting out of his cell. The guards checked the cells several times during the day and night, so it would have to appear like he was in his bunk. With old scraps of clothing and other items, Ty built a life-size dummy that he planned to position in his bed, just the way he always slept, with one leg over the edge. But sometimes the guards would call out to a prisoner. So Ty had to find a way to make the dummy talk. Using old parts of a radio, he built a speaker that was cleverly wired into the next cell. If a guard called out to him in the night, he would get a muffled response from Ty's next-door neighbor. Ty had enlisted the help of the other inmates on his range. And in the months it took to plan... No one betrayed him. There was a solidarity amongst the inmates on G-Range that could not be broken. Once Ty had the dummy built, his next challenge was fashioning the tools he would need for his hasty exit. Ty worked in the canvas shop repairing mailbags. It was a big space and perfect for stashing various odds and ends Ty collected from around the prison. There was even an old stepladder in the shop that Ty planned to make good use of. The canvas shop also contained a loading dock entrance. Ty calculated it was approximately 20 feet off the ground, and it opened from the inside. Getting out would be easy, but then there were the armed guards in the towers overlooking the prison grounds. Ty monitored their schedules closely, and remember what he was doing on his last trailer visit with his mom. Ty also knew when the guard dogs would circle the yard, looking for their prey. After months of planning, he was ready. 
No one had escaped from Kingston Penitentiary in 41 years. But that wasn't going to stop Ty Khan. For over 160 years, countless criminals had suffered behind the sinister walls of that dehumanizing prison. But on May 6, 1999, there was one dissatisfied resident who wasn't planning on spending even one more night. Just before noon on May 6th, Ty Khan left his cell for the last time. Then, he went to help out in the canteen before heading to his job in the canvas shop. He purposely arrived late to his work, so he missed the headcount done at the beginning of every shift. By 4 p.m., the inmates were recounted and clocked out of their shift in the canvas shop. Ty hadn't been counted in, so he wasn't missed on the count out. He stayed behind and hid. When he was sure that no one would return, he began working on the old stepladder. With pieces of metal brackets and tape, he extended the length of the ladder to 27 feet. It was extremely flimsy, but it was the best he could do. While Ty worked away in the canvas shop, his fellow inmates on Upper G Range arranged the dummy and speaker wires in his cell. With each cell check, the dummy was repositioned. By the 11.30 p.m. check, the fifth since he had left the range, the guard saw that Ty was fast asleep in his bunk. He always slept with one leg over the edge, and he never took his running shoes off. Back in the canvas shop, Ty was ahead of schedule, so he took a little nap. Then, just after 2 a.m., he carefully lowered his jerry-built ladder to the ground and climbed down the wall from the canvas shop loading dock. From there, he sprinted across the prison yard and repositioned his ladder against the 33-foot perimeter wall. Climbing up the rickety device, he moved gingerly, hoping it wouldn't collapse before he got to the top. This was the highest wall he had ever scaled. A behemoth built by convict labor in the 1800s. But it was not going to defeat Tai Khan. Reaching the limestone summit, Ty attached his homemade grappling hook to the edge of the wall and slid down the other side using a long strip of canvas he had crudely sewn together. As soon as his feet hit the ground, he started running. But not before sprinkling cayenne pepper on the ground to neutralize his scent from any tracking dogs. He had done it. He was free for the first time in eight years, and it felt exhilarating. Ty ran seven miles to Highway 401. He knew he had to get out of the area quickly before his absence was discovered. But he needed to make one local stop first. Friday, May 7th, 1999 was shaping up to be a busy day for Marion Chamberlain, but she was looking forward to a few days off. Marion held down several part-time jobs, so any downtime was rare. But that weekend was Mother's Day, 
and she planned on enjoying it with her son Max and his new baby. Marion was loving being a grandmother. And in fact, she had just received a silly Happy Grandmother's Day card from her other son, Ty. Just ten days earlier, Marion had visited Ty at Kingston Penitentiary. She always looked forward to their weekend trailer visits. It was the best they could do given the circumstances, since it didn't look like Ty was getting out of prison for a very long time. Since reconnecting with Ty 14 years earlier, Marion had worked hard at maintaining a positive relationship with her eldest son. She had missed the first 18 years of his life and still felt guilt and shame for abandoning him so many years ago. But at the time, she was a naive young girl, and everyone told her it was in her son's best interest to let him go and have a chance at a better life with another family. Sadly, it turned out that Ty's childhood had been anything but ideal. The Picton Children's Aid Society had allowed him to be adopted into a dysfunctional family where he was abused and neglected. Then, five years later, like an unwanted dog, he was returned to the social services agency and dumped into the foster care system. And from that moment on, Ty's life became a series of locked doors in institutions. He learned to adapt by stealing and running away. And by the time he was 17, he was serving time in a federal penitentiary for armed robbery. But Marion didn't care. She knew her son was an intelligent and kind man who had never harmed another person in his life. She loved Ty no matter what. And if she had any wish for Mother's Day in 1999, it was to one day see Ty free. And in a strange twist of fate, Marion was about to get her wish. When there was a knock at her door that Friday morning, she could hardly believe who was standing on the other side. It was Ty. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. 
For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombus donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombus.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Repeat escape artist breaks out of prison. Read the Toronto Star headlines the day after Kingston Penitentiary sounded the alarm that an inmate had escaped from the inescapable prison. A maintenance worker arriving early to work on the morning of May 7th had spotted something dangling from the east wall of the prison and had alerted the staff. Someone had escaped. But who? Check Tycon's cell, said Warden Monty Burke, as soon as he learned of the breakout. He knew it had to be calm. The guards checked Ty's cell and found the dummy with one leg hanging over the edge of the bed, just like Ty usually slept. And they found something else. On his wall calendar, Ty had written a note. May 6th, fishing trip, 1999. A humorous reference to his prior fishing trip in 1991 from Collins Bay Penitentiary. The administration was furious and they were embarrassed. How could Ty Khan have fooled them again? There would be a full internal investigation, and some guards would be suspended over the incident. But for now, they wanted their runaway prisoner apprehended. The police announced Ty Khan was on the run and should be considered armed and dangerous. The press were quick to pick up on the story, since no one had gone over the wall at Kingston Pen since 1958. So who was this guy? And how had he managed to escape from Canada's most secure prison? As people soon learned, Tyrone Kahn was a good-looking 32-year-old serial bank robber. In fact, he'd been holding up financial institutions in southeastern Ontario since he was 17. But there was more. He was also Canada's most successful prison escapee. His illegal exit from Kingston Pen was his third escape. It seemed as though the country's finest federal prisons just couldn't contain him. This was definitely front-page news. But when some industrious reporters dug a little further, they soon discovered there was much more to the story of the handsome bank robber on the run. Ty Khan had been institutionalized since he was 11 years old. Foster homes, group homes, juvenile detention centers, and finally prison. 
He had never been violent in the commission of his crimes. Yet, he was serving a 47-year prison term. How was that possible? People who knew him spoke about how likable he was and how he didn't belong in prison. He had done some bad things, but if anyone deserved another chance, it was Ty Khan. Even the warden of Kingston Penitentiary wanted to help him. Five days after Ty's brazen escape, Monty Burke made an emotional appeal to Ty Khan. He was asking Ty to turn himself in before it was too late. Warden Burke said he would personally help Ty get his life together for a future parole date if he voluntarily returned to the prison. But there was one condition to the warden's offer. If Ty reoffended, the deal was off. Soon, Ty's image and complicated backstory was in every newspaper across Canada. The Toronto Star had christened him King Khan, and people were cheering him on. Ty was suddenly famous, but that was not necessarily a good thing. His notoriety was making it much harder for him to hide. After his dramatic departure from Kingston Penn, Ty stole a truck and made his way to Stirling, Ontario, just north of Belleville, where he had some friends. He really wasn't sure what his next move was. His visit to his mom's house had been brief. He wanted to see her, and he needed a change of clothes. He wasn't going to get far in a prisoner's uniform. Shocked to see him at her door, Marion didn't know what to think. Had he gotten a pass out of prison for Mother's Day? No, that would have never happened. Ty was on the run again. She didn't ask him about the red pickup truck parked in the driveway. And she didn't ask him where he was going. The less she knew, the better. She'd been through this before and knew the police would be coming around very soon. Marion didn't know what to say to her son, so she spoke from her heart. You may not believe this, she said, but your life is valuable to me. And then he was gone. As expected, the police showed up at Marion's house and suggested that she turned her son in before it was too late. But Marion couldn't help them. She had no idea where Ty was. In fact, no one did. An extensive manhunt involving multiple police forces across southern Ontario had turned up few clues. And with each passing day, the cops feared that Ty Khan was getting further and further away. But despite his daring and elaborately planned escapes, Ty didn't always have a blueprint for his newfound freedom. And so it turned out he hadn't gone very far. On the afternoon of Tuesday, May 18th, 12 days after Ty scaled the wall of Kingston Penitentiary, he walked into the Bank of Commerce in Colburn, Ontario, with a mask on his face and a shotgun under his arm. Colburn is a small town, 
only 130 kilometers west of Kingston, Ontario, and Ty knew it well. In fact, he had robbed the same bank in 1991. One of the bank tellers had been there during his first robbery and instantly recognized him despite the mask. It was his eyes, she remembered. But by the time the police arrived, Ty Khan was long gone. He still didn't have a well-thought-out plan, but now he had blown the one opportunity he had been offered. Monty Burke, the warden of Kingston Penitentiary, couldn't help him any longer. By the time Ty got to Toronto, news of the robbery in Colburn was already hitting the airwaves. He needed another place to hide for a few days, but the constant press attention had scared away many of his ex-con friends and old standbys. His half-brother Max was living in Toronto with his partner and their new baby, but Ty didn't want to risk their safety by showing up at their doorstep. But he did call. I remember Ty telling Mom that I'm not going to bring any heat on Max. So you know, he was, you know, he, he staying at bay, but at least he, he called me and was able to really reach out, say that uh, he was all right at the time. He, he called me at, at the dealership and uh, that I was working at. I remember uh, at the, uh, the at my desk. So, you know, call from Max Chamberlain, line two. So I go over to my desk and pick up line two and be like, hi, Max Chamberlain, speaking to me, how me out. And, uh, you know, it's like, hey, man, how's it going? <laughs> Immediately, right? I'm like looking around. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I can speak. You know, and it was just sort of me talking. I'm like, are you okay? He's like, yeah, yeah. I said, uh, and I hated doing this, but um, the fact that I'm like, all right, you know, I'm supposed to tell you this, that you need to turn yourself in and everything. Max was glad that Ty was okay, but there wasn't much more he could do for him the police were already staking out his house. We've had uh, police visit the, you know, the apartment. And, uh, the only time they would show up was when I wasn't there. Um, my son was uh, not even a year old yet. Police would come visit, and I remember seeing them out on the street in their, in their unmarked car. I'm like, come on, <laughs> be a little less obvious, would you? What Max didn't know at the time was the tie wasn't far away. He was holed up in a shabby basement apartment in Toronto's West End. Desperate for a hideaway, Ty had contacted an old acquaintance from prison. Paulo Teixeira wasn't the kind of guy that Ty would have normally been friends with on the inside. He was a heroin addict. But Ty was running out of options. Paulo and his girlfriend, Sandy, lived in a basement apartment at 101 Alberta Avenue and they liked to party. So when Ty showed up with $13,000 in cash from his recent bank robbery, the three of them went on the town. With a newly shaved head and blue contact lenses, Ty hoped that he wouldn't be recognized. Most of the pictures of him in the newspapers were when he was much younger. For two days, Ty and his new roommates partied hard. Ty was excited to be back in the big city, but he talked about moving on to Halifax. He'd been there during his escape in 1989, and he had great memories. He felt safe there. 
On the night of May 19th, Teresa Burke's phone rang, waking her from a restless sleep. Since Ty Khan had escaped from Kingston Pen on May 6th, the CBC reporter was hoping her friend would reach out. She knew he had been in a dark place the last time she visited him, but she didn't think he would escape again. The call went dead before she could answer it, but she called the number back and a strange woman answered. Then she handed the phone to Ty. Teresa and Ty talked for two hours. He told Teresa that during his last stint in solitary confinement at Kingston Pen, he had acquired some drugs and he planned to commit suicide. After 14 years in prison, he was done. But then, he decided if he was going to die, he might as well die trying. So he planned his escape. He said that no matter what his future held, it was better than spending another day in prison. Ty also told Teresa that he had left a note on his computer explaining everything. And if anything happened to him, he wanted her to read it. Teresa never got the note. After Ty hung up the phone from Teresa, he continued to party. Ty had never been into drugs, but took some that night. By the next day, May 20th, Ty was ill. Was it from the drugs or something else? He didn't know. He just knew he was getting sicker as the day wore on. His time with Paulo and Sandy had worn thin, and he knew it was time to move on. They were acting weird. After a few desperate calls, Ty finally arranged to stay at another hideaway that night. But still feeling sick, he ended up falling asleep in the dingy apartment. When he finally woke up, it was nighttime, and he was by himself. Paulo and Sandy were nowhere to be found. But he would soon discover he wasn't alone. There were plenty of others outside of the apartment, and they were just waiting for him to stir. Pam Houston lived in the upstairs apartment at 101 Alberta Avenue. She didn't know Paulo and Sandy, her downstairs neighbors, too well, but she knew they liked to have a good time. She would often see strange people coming and going from their apartment, but still, they were friendly enough and sometimes they bought treats for her kids. In fact, the guy with the shaved head, who had been staying there for a few days, had bought candies for a bunch of the neighborhood kids. Pam was just making her kids some dinner around 8.30 that Thursday night in May when she got a strange call from Paulo. He sounded frantic. He didn't explain why, but he told her she needed to get out of her apartment right away. Pam grabbed her kids and hurried out of the house. And as soon as she was on the street, she saw the cars. Unmarked cop cars. And there were a lot of them. By 9 p.m. on Thursday, May the 20th, 1999, Ty Khan was caught. Dozens of heavily armed police had surrounded the house on Alberta Avenue. He had nowhere to go and he was told to come out unarmed. Ty shouted back. He had no intentions of giving up. He said he would rather die than go back to prison. He had a gun, 
and he would use it on himself if they tried to come in. But he wanted them to know that he had no desire to hurt anyone else. A police negotiator tried to reason with Ty. He said he didn't want to see anyone get hurt either. But then, without warning, the police fired a stun grenade into the apartment. The explosive device was meant to temporarily disorient, blind and deafen him. But Ty managed to crawl through the smoke and find his gun. Then, they fired rubber bullets at him. But Ty didn't go down. Realizing that they were in the midst of a difficult standoff, the police negotiator asked Ty if he wanted anything. Yes, he said. He wanted to make a phone call. Teresa Burke got home just before midnight on that Thursday evening. She noticed there was a phone message. Since talking with Ty the night before, she had been worried and upset. She knew he was adamant about not going back to prison, which she understood, but she didn't want anything to happen to him. The message on her phone was from a police officer. They had Ty Khan surrounded in a Toronto apartment. He had a gun and was threatening to harm himself. Ty was asking to speak to her. After what seemed an eternity with the police trying to get Ty a cell phone that worked, Teresa finally heard his voice. He didn't sound good. He was weak from being physically sick, and he was very emotional. Teresa tried to calm him down. They had known each other for five years, and she was a good friend. Teresa found herself echoing the same words Ty's mom had said to him. People cared about him, and no matter what, his life mattered. Ty apologized. He was embarrassed about the situation he was in, and he really didn't want to see anyone else upset or hurt. He was distraught and confused, so he wanted to keep talking to his friend Teresa, but the phone line kept cutting out. He yelled out to the police that he had to move to get better reception. The police acknowledged his request. Moving across the apartment, he then sat down in a chair and asked Teresa if she could hear him better. She could, but then his next words cut out. Teresa heard a muffled sound, a pop, and then the cell phone hitting the floor. Their call had lasted 13 minutes. Ty Khan was dead. Ty's brother Max remembers getting the call that they had found him. Uh, I remember I ended up falling asleep on the couch, and uh, my father was uh, was there was with us at the time, and I guess he got the call and uh, he woke me up. He said that they got Ty. They, they got Ty. Um, you know, all groggy eyed and tired. And I was like, well, was he all right? And it was, no, no, he's not. Ty had died from a single gunshot wound to the chest at close range. Had he taken his own life? Did he finally decide that a quick death was better than a lifetime in prison? The initial press reports certainly seemed to imply just that. But for those who loved him, his family, his friends, they knew there was much more to the story. The police would later reveal that it was likely that Ty had shot himself accidentally 
while trying to sit down in the chair to get better cell phone reception. But he was weak and disoriented. He had a shotgun in one hand and the phone in the other. Then something happened and the gun went off. Ty Khan did not commit suicide. Ty's brother has had many years to think about what happened in that dingy apartment on the night of May 20th, 1999. This is my opinion. I knew they were shooting the, the R9 rounds, those big rubber bullets at him. I knew they put uh, the flashbangs on him at that point, and they're trying to rush him. And the only thing to do at that point to stop that is to turn the gun on yourself. They stand back. This is enough. And at that point, he was uh, talking to um, Teresa Burke. He was uh, he he loved Teresa Burke. Um, they had uh, they had a good relationship. She was very dear to him. And uh, in my opinion, you, you you don't off yourself in a mid conversation with someone who's very dear to you. I don't care how upset you are, but it's it's a mid conversation point. In my opinion, I think they tried to hit him with one of those you know rubber bullets or something again and try to incapacitate him you know you've already got the gun on yourself and you get hit with one of those you go back and gun goes off that's that's my opinion of it i don't i I truly don't believe if if it was it was a suicide at that point although i do remember ty saying i'm never going back ty wasn't going back to prison ever he was finally free but there were still many unanswered questions and many left to mourn Max had always wondered if there was something he could have done to change the heartbreaking outcome. What, what could I have done to make to, to, to have things better? Because he, he, he called me once when he was out, and I was at the time I was selling cars at a car dealership. And I always thought, uh, you know, to get one of my suits together, and my, one of my old briefcases. And I'm like, they'd never look for him in a, in a, in a suit. <laughs> He wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't try to picture him like that. I'm like, that would be the perfect uh, disguise for him. But unfortunately, again, I don't think one of my suits would have fit Ty. But <laughs> just uh, one of those things. You know, it was like uh, it, it, that, that instant sort of, um, what could I have done better? So it wouldn't have turned out like this. That kind of goes through your mind. It's like this, uh, I don't know, is this a survivor's guilt? Or something like that. It could have been, should have been. I should have did this. I should have did this. Or I should have done that. Uh, I have an unconditional love for Ty too, right? Like if there was anything I could have done uh, differently, I, I would have. But fortunately, I uh, you have to act to a certain way. Like I had a, a, a baby. That was my my main responsibility. After Ty died, it was eventually revealed that there wasn't much anyone could have done to change the outcome of that night in May. Was it just a tragic confluence of circumstances that ended up costing Ty his life? If he hadn't been so sick, he would have left the apartment before the police arrived. If the police hadn't fired a stun grenade into the apartment, he might not have been so terrified. And if the cell phone had been working properly, he wouldn't have moved to try to get better reception. Was it all just a stupid accident? Or was Ty's death more deliberate? How did the police actually know where to find him? It turned out that Ty's roommates, Paulo and Sandy, had conveniently checked into a hotel on the day Ty was captured. And it was from the safety of their hotel room 
that Paulo made the mysterious call to Pam Houston, the upstairs neighbor, telling her to get out of the house. Why Paulo turned Ty in remains a mystery to this day. On May 29, 1999, a sunny spring day, a large and somber crowd gathered in a Belleville church to say goodbye to Ty Khan. Marion Chamberlain was there to say goodbye to her eldest son, the beautiful blonde-haired boy she had lost so many years ago, only to find him again after so many others had let him down and hurt him. Max Chamberlain was there too. He was 11 when he found out he had an older brother. And what a cool brother he was. But Ty never wanted Max to follow in his footsteps. And Max never did. Amongst the many other mourners in the church that day were CBC journalists, Lyndon McIntyre and Teresa Burke. I know Ty thought of himself and his life to be great failures said Lyndon McIntyre during the eulogy to his friend. But he was wrong. As a human being, Ty was one of the most successful people I know. Lyndon McIntyre then concluded his eulogy with words from a letter Ty Khan had written to him. Quote, My escapes are a way of stealing back some of the time I have lost. And whenever I get out, I do my best to collect the widest variety of experiences so that I can recall them later when I'm locked up. End quote. During his prison escape in 1989, Ty had traveled to the east coast of Canada. Learning that his biological father was from Newfoundland, he felt an affinity towards the Maritimes. And he once told his mother, Marion, that if anything were to happen to him, He wanted to be cremated, and he wanted his ashes scattered in the wind. So, in honor of her son, Marion asked another Maritimer to take Ty's ashes to the East Coast. On July 17, 1999, Lyndon McIntyre returned Ty Khan to the sea, just off the west coast of Cape Breton. Final fishing trip, 1999. In 2001, Lyndon McIntyre and Teresa Burke released a book about their unique friendship with a young, well-spoken inmate they met in a federal prison in 1994. Titled, Who Killed Ty Khan? The book reveals the story of a man whose short, tragic life was almost predetermined from the moment of his birth. And while it was clear who pulled the trigger on that fateful night in May of 1999, many others were ultimately responsible for his death. Ty Khan will always be Max Chamberlain's big brother. He had uh, a decent heart. He uh, trusted people and uh, he always seemed to get uh, the backlash on it. I just hope, uh, if, if there was a kid that was in the same situation as Ty, I, I would hope that, that somebody would be able to give the kid a break, show him that not all people are out to get them or want to punish them. Or uh, There's people that, that do care. 
Escape from Kingston Penitentiary, The Life and Death of Tyrone Khan, is written and produced by Catherine Fogarty. Audio production is by Daniel Borgers at Borgers Music. A special thank you to Max Chamberlain. This is the Story Hunter Productions podcast. Visit us at storyhunterpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter to get more information and updates about new podcasts. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you enjoyed this story and others, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and feel free to leave us a review. We appreciate you listening. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.